Hi Venters and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Decks. This is a music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker, and presented to you by Vent. Vent is a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. In each episode of Behind the Decks, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their artistry and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this episode of Behind the Decks is DJ and producer Ryan Doyle. I came across Ryan through friend of the pod Jade Morgan Kelly, who he is supporting at her latest headline show in November 2023, and I immediately loved his brand of disco, pop and R&B in his music. In this episode, we discuss his music journey from initially pursuing a career in marine biology to changing course to pursuing a career in music, taking it seriously and obtaining a master's in music production in 2022. For industry issues, we discuss the relentless nature of being an independent artist and having to do most tasks yourself whilst managing a nine-to-five alongside it, music industry burnout, social media, and the indecisiveness of people in the music industry, which I can definitely relate to. For Ryan's mental health, we discuss self-determination and focus, his mum and dad's separation, people-pleasing, and some issues he's had within his family where some members were not as supportive of his music ambitions whilst others were very much all in. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Decks with Ryan Doyle. Ryan, welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. Thank you very much for coming on and letting me check in with you. I came across you through friend of the pod, Jade Morgan Kelly. And any friend of Jade is a friend of mine. And we are recording this quite soon before you play a London show. So this is your chance to plug it. And tell me how you are, first of all. I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm. as we record this, I'm supporting Jade on Tuesday. Today's Friday. And then I've got my debut headline at Paper Dress Vintage on the 5th of December, tickets still available, so go grab them if you like my music, and yeah, can't wait to see you there. Well, I will explain this off air as well, but uh, the sooner you can complete the admin side of this podcast, mate, the sooner this pod goes out, so hopefully by the time this goes out, it won't be after your show, it'll be before your show, there we go. <laughs> I absolutely loved your music when I came across it, mate, and I'm really pleased to be sharing it and giving your artistry and artist platform a platform, so without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Of course, let's do it. Let's start the pod as we always do on Behind the Decks, mate, by talking about your music journey. So I ask all my special guests on Behind the Decks this question first on this topic. Tell me how your love affair with music began. Maybe who are some of your favourite idols or records you listened to growing up and how you first got into producing or playing instruments. So the first time I got into music was like, lower school I was like four years old and there was a tryout day for all the instruments that they were offering and you had to go and audition and see what you liked and what you didn't like and um I auditioned for them all and my mum always tells the story like she got a head teacher's phone call saying oh we want Ryan to come and 
learn every <laughs> instrument that we've got on offer. <laughs> and she was like, well, that's just ridiculous because he's going to be spending more time practicing instruments than he is going to be going to school. So she made me pick one. Her and my dad made me pick one. And I ended up picking guitar. And that was kind of my first foray into music. And then kind of did all that traditional going through the grades, learning, doing the exam stuff. And I get incredibly nervous about anything. And I remember on the morning of my grade one exam for my guitar, I was absolutely pulling my pants. And I was like, I'd never, ever, ever want to do this again. <laughs> and it's like such an insignificant moment in my life. But I think it's always stayed with me. And that stress and anxiety and stuff builds up every time. So I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. Never packed a guitar in, but packed in like the traditional going through yes, the yeah. lessons and great. I don't know many people like, who enjoy that, this. to be honest, even those who have gone for it and actually smashed it. <laughs> I think, I don't know, from my experience, I felt so much pressure on something that was so tiny at such a young age. I think I did it when I was like 11, 12. And I was just like, I just hate this. And I always tell people that like, I can remember everything about that day, literally from the moment I woke up to going to bed. But I can't remember the hour that I was doing the exam. It was just like I worked myself up into such a frenzy that it's just completely gone out my head. So I was like, yeah, I'm never doing this again. This is awful. So just carried on playing the guitar. And then when I went to middle school, they had like, Apple Macs with Garage Band on it. What school were you going to? This was a very, started. this is a very expensive school. <laughs> I know. I I went to quite a nice. <laughs> to be fair, it wasn't a private school; it was a public school. But they invested so much money into the music. Apple Macs, God, a Garage so, Band and Logic Pro as a teenager. I know it was crazy, <laughs> but it was like, at the time it was like <laughs> I was like I had an hour's music lesson a week, and it was like, okay, let's just see what I can make out of loops and stuff. And I was just became addicted to making songs but they weren't my own just like sampling and stuff and i was like i really enjoy this i want to do this more so then i got my own computer and got logic thought that was the next step and was experimenting making stuff from like 15 16 and then uni came around what did i want to go and do and i'm a huge doubter of myself and have always been and when it came to doing a degree I was like well I can't do music because I'm not good enough and it was never deemed like a sustainable mm, viable. Mm. viable career at that age and I was always quite good at school and into my science and stuff like that so I went and did a degree in marine biology in Swansea which was great because whilst I was doing that degree, it gave me so much time to work I was going to say, yeah. And I think whenever I wasn't doing uni work, I was just making music and bashing out the tunes. And they still weren't very good. And when I go back and listen to them now, I'm like, this is terrible. Did the uni um, degree give you any skills that you, you use in music now? Just whether it's, you know, perseverance or whether it's anything technical either? I think a lot of people when they go to uni, they're, they're very like free and the shackles are off and there's no structure. God. I tell you and that I for was free. Complete... I was like that. Eight hours of contact time. <laughs> <laughs> I was completely the other way and was like, okay, let's stay rigid. I'm going to go to everything. Whatever I do, I want to do my absolute best in. So I was like, every lecture, every opportunity, I'm going to go. And it taught me to live on my own, but also manage myself and manage my life. And things rarely got out of my control. I always like being in mm. control. And I think those years kept me on top of that. But then COVID happened 
and everyone was stuck at home. And I went from doing a mixture of uni work to music to just doing music all day, every day. And was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And I think in the back of my mind, marine biology had kind of gone, yeah, this is a bit boring for me. Like I wouldn't ever talk anyone out of doing it, but it just, I had another passion and that was what I wanted to go and do. So then I went and did a master's degree at LCCM, the London College of Contemporary Very Music. Very prestigious, by the way. It's Yeah, and it's it's had a lot of cool people mm. go through there and they're kind of back on the up again, which is great. Is to it see. like and, music production RADA or am I getting that wrong? Um, yeah, so it, it's kind of a blend. So there's production, performance, and then they also teach or had started teaching as I was leaving the business side of right. stuff. So there's courses to go and be a manager or try and be a manager or work in events or that Dame, kind of thing. So it's a real, <laughs> yeah, it's a real mixed bag of stuff. But that was great because then that got me in an environment where I was making music every day around people who were making music mm. every day. And that just kind of, for me, accelerated my progression, I feel. And then I left there last September and for the last sort of 12 months have just been putting out tunes and getting release plans together and since leaving I can notice that my music has got so much better and I think if I look back on a year ago now and to see everything that has happened and all the placements and articles and stuff that we've got in the last year I could have never imagined that a year ago let alone five years ago when I was in Swansea so it's been a massive direction shift for me but one that I'd choose every time. What were your influences during the masters and what were your influences during those early years when you were learning all those instruments and what ones came out strongest to lead you to the sound you make now as Ryan Doyle? When I was a kid my family weren't the most musical and they liked to listen to music but it was a lot of the same albums on repeat (laughs) and my mum thought she could sing but (laughs) she really can't but I remember when I was really young my dad had a Lamar oh now we're talking great album I've got that album what an album (laughs) (laughs) that was always on in the car wherever we went and my mum was a huge fan or still is a huge fan of Rod Stewart I just oh (laughs) I'm gonna listen to it after this there's some great tunes on there there's some huge bangers Fame Academy days he was he came really? third on Fame Academy. That's how I he that's uh, launched his career. Yeah, it might be a bit before your time, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, my mum listened to Rod Stewart. And I can remember the first album that I had was Michael Jackson. So I don't really know from a young age where the influence to end up in this sort of dancey disco pop has come from. But when I was like 16, 17, and that new wave of slower dance mm. music was coming through kind of like Kygo, Jonas Blue, Michael Kaufman, that kind of more summery Tropical House I think was the uh, Tropical House yeah Tropical House very short-lived Tropical House yeah that kind of summer 16 17 was like yeah and then everything I made was kind of like that and super laid back and chill with these nice melodies on top pan pipes everywhere that was kind of pan pipes flutes nice synths it was you know so (laughs) terrible (laughs) it was a product of his time mate it was a product of his time certainly what i was making the the stuff that came out was great because it inspired me but yeah and then that kind of evolved and some of i'd say my early singles probably slow motion and cry for love they are largely inspired by that as well and then for this stuff 
more certainly this year, it's kind of, okay, how can we change that angle? And it became more like, okay, SG Lewis, mm. that kind of vibe. And yeah, that's where we've ended up with this sound now. And then going forwards, it's kind of got to be an evolution of that. So yeah, I think if it wasn't for summer 2016, 2017, and that sound, I'm not sure I'd be doing what I do mm. now. But what actually made me want to produce was I saw Avicii at the Wireless Festival. R.I.P. In 2015, 2014. And I was just like, yeah, I want to do that. Whatever that is. I've just got to be able without to the uh, do 365 that. tour dates in 365 days. <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah, built for that. Yeah, okay. at all. He wasn't either. <laughs> oh, bless his soul. No, exactly. That kind of was his downfall, mm. wasn't it? And what got too much for him. So yeah, but yeah, that sound and just to have what was it, fifty, sixty thousand people mesmerized on a guy behind some DJ decks. I just thought it was crazy because it was, you know, that amount of people can turn up and see a band and an artist or whatever, but this is a guy fiddling some knobs and playing his tunes out and just looking like he's having the best time. Well, ever. on the surface. With on the, yeah, on yeah. the surface. Obviously, it was a much darker mm. behind the scenes, but I was like, yeah. That's for me. That's something yeah. I want to pursue. Yeah. That's for me, apart from the, the bad well, bits. We've spoken about here the superstar DJ, and I always ask this question on Behind the Decks to expose the myth of the superstar DJ and that it's only really applicable, this life, to a very small minority of producers and even the ones that are like we've just mentioned there's always a very dark side underneath so just tell me about some mm. of the realities of the music industry positive or negative that have affected your mental health when it comes to work-life balance relationships friendships anything else that maybe your friends your family or even your fans might not be aware of i think it goes without saying it's tough mm. really tough and mentally over the last sort of three years or so which I'm sure we'll get into I've become so resilient to a lot of things and that's mainly from personal stuff and that has has helped me in terms of the music stuff and it's a great asset to have because if something needs to be done I just do it if something needs to be turned around in two days it just gets done and everything else just gets put behind me and I don't worry about that because I know that'll be there and I can come back to that. The downside of that is I get very stressed, very snappy to those closest around me. But I'd like to think that they know and understand that everything I'm doing for me at some point will pay off down the line for them. And I know I'm a pain to be around at Who times. Who is it, mate? <laughs> and yeah, I know. And I think... Over the certainly over the last year, I think people have known, or those closest to me have known when to leave me alone, when to let me do stuff, when I'm in a good mood, when I'm in a bad mood, when I'm stressed. And we've kind of gone on that journey together. From the outside, if someone looked in, they'd go, oh, this guy's so aggressive and stroppy and shirty and whatnot. And I don't deny any of that. But as I say, in terms of that mental resilience, if something's got to be done, it's got to be done. And that's just the bottom line. And I think in terms of other aspects, that helps because when you do something and it doesn't come off for whatever reason, it's like, okay, that's fine. We'll move on to the next one. And I think you've got to take the hits and the knocks and the no's to get the yeses. And I think if I wasn't perhaps as tough in my own mind as I am, I'm not sure how long I'd be cut out for it. And I think the last three years have helped that. So yeah, I think for anyone 
that does take everything so personally, I, I can only feel sorry for them because everything must affect them where I try not to let mm. stuff affect me. And if people want to be on this journey with me, great. I want you to come along and be supportive and whatever. If you don't, that's also fine. But the chances are, you know, you can't come back on. Yeah, you can't jump on and off the train as and when it suits you. We're either on it and we take all the hits and do everything together. Yeah, and you can't you can't jump on jump board. on when it's a signal failure. <laughs> exactly. And I, I liken it to like being a football fan. You can't turn up just for the big games. You know, you, if you're a season ticket holder, you've got to turn up when it's, you know, low league fodder. And, you know, you can't just turn out for the finals. Mm. And I think that's a thing where... Although I, I have cut people off and chose to do that myself, it's a distraction. And I think in this game, you can't be surrounded by distractions. You have to be focused. You have to drive yourself. And those around you, when you're not driving yourself, have to drive you too. You spoke earlier in the pod about that anxiety you had before performing. So when it comes to the stage, because you do DJ sets and you do live sets, what does the stage provide for your mental health, if anything? Oh, um, before getting on stage, absolutely terrible. I can't eat. I can't drink. I'll be the biggest nervous wreck. And my headline show in a couple of weeks is on a Tuesday. And I can imagine that will probably start about Saturday. <laughs> and it, it just will drone on. When I get on stage, it's like, okay, this is all right. I know what I'm doing here. This is kind of my thing. Still a little bit anxious. And I think what doesn't help is like, Every time you play, so when I did Great Escape Festival, wherever you play and it's not your event and people aren't fully aware of you, it's like, oh, are they going to like it? Are they going to like this tune? What are they in for? Where I think perhaps this time around with it being my own show, it'll be easier because people want to come and they want to come and see me and my music. And if they didn't want to, they wouldn't come. So I think that anxiety comes from, are people going to like this? I want to please everyone. I want everybody that comes, I want to have the best experience and love everything. And if you don't, that's fine, but that will make me sad, Mm. you know? And I think the same with DJing. It's like (laughs) being a DJ is essentially curating someone's playlist and then they've got to enjoy that when you put those tunes out. So for Jade's thing on Tuesday, it's like, okay. We've never met, right, me and Jade. Never, we've spoke a couple of times on text. She's great. I've, I've not no met her in real life I've anyway, no but idea. she's great. <laughs> <laughs> she's great. Right, so I've got no idea what she's going to want. I've got no idea what the people coming are going to want. Obviously, they're going to like her stuff, but it's like, how can I put my own spin on this, play my tunes, play stuff they're going to like? They're all sort of the questions that I'm asking myself as I'm prepping this. And then as soon as you come off stage, having done all of that, if it's gone well, it's the best feeling ever. And it's like, oh, well, why did I get so stressed about that in the first place? Which, thankfully, fingers crossed, has been the case every time. But it still seems to be that repeating cycle of, okay, I'll get worked up and then it'll all be fine. And I genuinely think that stems back to that guitar exam at 12 years old. I don't think I've ever really got over that. Which I think the more I play and the more I do this, it'll get easier. You haven't got over it yet, maybe, Um, but you will. I haven't got over it yet, but I'd like to think I will. Which outlet of producing, writing, or playing instruments has the biggest impact on your mental health, would you say? They're all very different. Producing is where I feel most comfortable, especially when I'm producing for myself or I'm producing 
poppy stuff. Anything outside of that I can do and I'm happy to do and love working on, but it takes a little bit more thought and a little bit more, yeah, a bit more thought, a bit more effort. Where I think when I'm producing myself, it's like, okay, as soon as I get that idea, it's like bash, bash this tune out. It sounds great. This is great. and I love it. And it's like an internal excitement that's like no other. So I think that's the best feeling. Writing is different because especially when you're writing with others, you've got to try and understand what they're feeling, what you're feeling, and then come out with a product at the end of that. And I think that's a very different mental experience because you're tapping into yourself to write stuff, whatever that mood is. And if if you're in a bad mood, it's going to be an interesting Mm -hmm. song. And instruments, I think that's kind of where the experimentation comes from. That's a nice feeling in itself. I mean, none of them have a negative impact because I love doing all of them. But if I were to rank them, it would probably be producing instruments and then writing. Is that one to three or three to one? One One to three, three. yeah, one to three. You spoke earlier about the difficulty of having to maintain a nine to five, also doing music at the moment and that pressure and everything that comes with it. How do you avoid burnout? (laughs) that's a feeling that I'm feeling a lot (laughs) at the minute for me and what has always been the case for as long as I can remember is that mental resilience kicks back into play and I will just keep going and going and going and going and going and then as soon as probably the headlines out of the way I'll just crash for four or five days and I know that's probably not the best way to deal with it and I always get told I should slow down and take more breaks but I have an internal fear all the time and it's like there's so many people out there that want to do this as a career and go full time that if I'm not working at 100% all the time, someone else is and that scares me because I'm trying to maximize everything I can give until this pays off. That's quite a lot of pressure to put on yourself though, bro. I know, but I enjoy it at times. As long as it's Um, in balance, that's all I'm thinking. Yeah, I... I... My girlfriend will tell you, I'm an absolute nightmare. I don't stop. And I think I don't stop because I love it. And if I didn't love it, there'd be no drive. Mm. No Um, passion, no point, as Eddie Hearn says. Exactly. So yeah, I, I, I will work myself and work myself and work myself. But then I'll go, probably after the show, probably go three, four weeks without doing anything major. And that's kind of like a reset. And then I'll go again. And that probably happens two or three times a year. And it's just my way of dealing with it and anything else hasn't seemed to work for me. The other industry issue that you wanted to discuss, mate, it's something that we had quite a good chat about off air as we share quite a lot of our own grumblings about this, which is this indecisiveness, which you say, and I agree with, pervades the music industry. Just tell me and the listeners what you meant by that, because I know what it means, but what does it mean? I think in kind of anything to do with this industry it takes a long time to either get a yes or no <laughs> or if at all and yeah a lot of the time it is oh i'll get back to you i'll have a think about Bane it that kind of thing of my life <laughs> <laughs> and i think i'm quite a straight talking yes. person and if i've got something to say I'll, I'll say it within reason not to get cancelled i don't mind a no i prefer a no like, i'd prefer a no to a maybe and i think I, I get that things take time and that's fine whatever but there has to come a point where a decision is made and stuff can't rumble on forever i just wish 
you know, if people weren't interested, and it's, it's more often with the no's than the yeses. If people want something, they'll just say yes. With the no's, if you don't want it, that's fine. Just say no. And I can move on. We can all move on. Everybody knows where they stand. There's no middle ground. And I think it would just make everyone's life a little bit easier. So, yeah, that's that's one thing that I'd like to change if I could. But I know I never will be. I'm glad to. you said that because, goddamn, it really, really annoying. Like, I put out a tweet about this ages ago and I was like, I can count the number of negative interactions that I've had with artists once I get to them on one hand. I can count the number of positive interactions with music industry figures on one hand. <laughs> make it make sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Yeah, it's ridiculous to get hold of people. And I, th- I just think everyone's scared of making a decision. Oh, mate, honestly, um, I, I was trying to get an artist on the other week and I DM'd him and I was like, mate, love your music. Would you want to come on? Blah, blah. And he was like, oh yeah, cool, cool. Just just go from my agency, blah, blah. And I, was, I didn't want to say, oh, well, I know they'll take three months to get back to me or whatever. So I was like, cool, cool. I'll, I'll go through them, bro. I'll go through them. Went to him, emailed them. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll get back to you. Yeah, I've copied this person in. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. And I work in PR, so like my full-time job. I know the game, right? I know the game completely. I'm fully on board with it. It's like, cool, cool, bless, bless. Leave it to him. A couple of weeks later, a couple of weeks later. All right, cool. No email. Chase them up. Yeah, uh, any, uh, just give me an answer, then I'll move on. No answer. Message the artist. Mate, can you just drop him a word? Like, give me an extra news. Oh, I'm sorry about that, mate. Message them. Never heard from him again. It's like, <laughs> It happens all the time. Um... Um, I was like, if you're keen, bro, let's do it. Let's just cut them out because they're pissing me off. Yeah. And I think like me and you are similar in that fact that we'll just say it and we'll say what we think. And I think I, I've been called rude and sharp and abrupt all the time, but I don't mind saying it. So I'd like to think that you'd respect me saying that more than me stringing you along, mm-hmm. you know? But I don't know. We work in a creative world where everything's so everything's kind of... just we just get back to you next week and uh... exactly. And if you say you get back to me next week and you get back to me Calm. next week, cool. Yeah. I don't mind yeah. that either. That's fine. It's just yeah, just don't don't never get back to me. Yeah, I'd rather an exactly, answer. Mate. You know, so, we could we could talk yeah, about this for absolutely years. Fun, but I'm, I'm <laughs> we conscious. Could, we can make yeah, a exactly, whole podcast exactly, out of this. Exactly. Let's reflect on your music journey so far, mate. So, what has it taught you about yourself? It's taught me to believe in myself more, to trust myself more, and to go with my gut a lot more. I think, especially like you make a song and then you show it around to people who would like to help. And like I'm always open to ideas and critique and I'm never going to kick a fuss up about someone trying to help me. Always open to that. But I think when you get too many people around you giving conflicting opinions that's a hindrance so most of the time i like to stick with my gut go with what i know show it to one or two people that i really trust and that's it and i think that's something that i've kind of honed over the last 18 months two years in terms of showing 15 people a song before it comes out to showing two and i know that hopefully as this grows and develops and a team gets bigger and we show it round, that's cool but everybody's kind of pointing in the same direction. If you get a team that's all pointing in the same direction, everything's fine. When you've got people who think you should be doing this or playing with that or doing X, Y, Z, that's when things get more difficult. So yeah, definitely trust myself a lot more. Ryan knows best. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> Can't have people thinking that. because No, not that's the mention you should take. Um, but I don't know best. That's the thing. I like to go with my gut to an extent, but you know, if I knew best, I'd be the biggest DJ in the world. And 
I'm not because you have to learn off other people to be able to develop to that stage and get input. That's if you'd know all, not know best. <laughs> if you knew all, then you would oh, be the biggest DJ. You're going to try and wrap me up here. You're going <laughs> to stitch me up. Yeah, You know what I mean. So yeah, definitely that. And I think if I could go back and tell 17, 18 year old me who wanted to do this before going to uni, you can do this. That's something that I'd love to do because back then I never believed in myself. And also it's, it's taught me that hard work does pay off, I think. Yeah, like from an early age, I've always been told, you know, you can be talented but not work hard and you'll get nowhere most of the time. Or you can be hardworking and not the most talented and it'll get you more results. And I think that's kind of come to fruition for me in the last year. We've talked all about Ryan, the DJ, producer, an artist let's go behind the decks and dive into your mental health journey mate so again i ask all my special guests on this topic this question first too take me back to early life childhood teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences who's the ryan we meet here early life was nice grew up with my mum dad sister younger sister everything was good yeah i i don't have any obvious negative mental issues from an early age and then teenage years much more of the same I'm lucky I had a very nice childhood and grew up in a nice place with nice things and a nice family and everything was great and then the biggest difficulty probably in my life my mum and dad split up I was 21 so maybe three years ago and the aspect of them splitting up wasn't a problem what then followed was difficult. We moved out of the family home. I chose to spend most of my time with my mum, see my dad more regularly, but he was living in a flat intermittent of moving. My mum had got a new house, but it hadn't been built yet, which was a big jump. So we ended up kind of going six, seven months class as homeless. We would just stay with different people, which was tough. I'd started my master's at that point so I'd gone from having this really nice production set up at home with all my equipment and stuff to essentially being just me my laptop nowhere really to work spaciously everything was a bit cramped which obviously I massively take for granted but trying to make tunes and you know fighting with your laptop on your leg and then you're doing it in the back of a car and then you're here there and everywhere at the time was was tough and obviously on top of that not having your own home is tough or at least somewhere that feels like home and that I think is what really developed my mental resilience I think the first couple of weeks it was it was rough and then it's another one in away from music okay this is the situation we're in we know the end goal we know what we got to do to get there there's no point whinging moaning Let's just get it done, whatever it takes, which I then think feeds back into music. But that for my whole life has been the worst bit. And I tell myself that I'm over it now and I'm I'm sure I am. I think there must be some sort of deep <laughs> trauma locked away somewhere. I feel fine now. Like I've got somewhere to live. I moved out, although I was technically living at home, again, taught me how to take control of my life be in control and I think that's where a lot of 
my traits and characteristics come from being in control, being able to, if something goes wrong, I can fix it. I don't like things out of my hands, but that was definitely the worst phase. A, a theme that's run throughout this podcast, mate, is resilience. And Nassim Nicholas mm-hmm. Tlaib, an author that I'm a big fan of, despite the book being a bit of a tome, is he writes about a concept called anti-fragility, whereby he posits that resilience, when bad things happen to people, resilience means you stay the same. However, if you are anti-fragile, it means that when bad things happen to you in life, that you change for the better because of them. Where would you say you fall on that spectrum? Definitely anti-fragile. I think there's been a huge, a huge development in me personally as a result of everything in the last four years. Yeah, definitely now. Now you said that I'd never heard that before. But I'll send yeah, you a link maybe, to the book, mate, yeah. if you want to read it. Anti fragility yeah. rather than mental resilience. Um, I mean, you can have both, but I mean, if you change for the better, I believe that you are more anti fragile than resilient. Because showing resilience means that you can just buff it. You know, everyday life challenge. But if something big happens to you, and you change for the better. I, I would argue that it's more anti fragility. And then if it's really deep trauma and you can improve out of it, some people would call that post-traumatic growth as well. So yeah, there's different mm-hmm. angles you can take. Different yeah. bands of it. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you then. Anti-fragility. Yeah, but that was that was tough. But I think I definitely think I've grown and come out of it better mm. and a more rounded person than I was before. Given the fact that your parents separated when you were 21, mate, You also mentioned to me off air that people pleasing is something that you've struggled with in the past. Now, did it start prior to your parents' separation and did that event maybe turbocharge it or affect it in any way? I think from as early as I can remember, I like making people happy. That's why you're an artist. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, has an origin, mate. In lots of different ways. I'd like to think that the people closest to me know that I'm a nice person. Mm-hmm. Like to think that I'd help anyone in any way that I can. And that's kind of always been part of me. I think, I don't know. I, I, I don't think the, the separation has kind of developed that. I think because it came a lot yes. later in my life I was kind of fully or not fully but well formed as a character by that point because I know lots of people who've had separated parents and it's had a negative effect Mm. on them but it happened at a much younger age where I think for me probably not but then the more and more I've got involved in music and the more and more people that I've helped or not helped sorry met who do music and go what do you think of this what do you think of that you know if I really like you and we get on I will do anything I can to try and help in any way possible. But then again, most of that, you know, if people ask me for, <laughs> this is, oh, let me go back. This is where it has its downsides. People will show me a song and go, what do you think of this? And then I'll give them my opinion. And I often get told that I'm cold and blunt and whatever, but that's my opinion. Mm. I'll just tell you that. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing it from a good place. And I think if you're asking me what I think, mm-hmm. this is what I think. And that's where it can go the other way. And then people don't like that because it feels like I'm attacking their well, baby. They should say, then they should I'm know not, not to ask you then if they don't want to, like, if they don't like the well, response, exactly. don't ask you. I, I, it's kind of a bit of both ways, isn't it? I think whenever I do something, it's always from the best place. I'm of never course. out there to have a go. And that's the bit that I struggle with. It says, I want to help as many people as I can within reason. Sometimes I try and do too much. But then it's got to be a two-way thing. If mm-hmm. I want to help you, you at least not kick yeah. off 
just at me voicing an opinions. Everyone's got exactly. opinions, you know. You can show a tune to 15 different people and come back with 150 critiques. How do you create boundaries um, then? So you are still in a good place, but if you give your opinion to someone, it puts their nose out of joint. That's on them rather than you, and you don't get affected by it. Because it's hard. I, I'm a people pleaser in recovery myself, mate. I had to do a lot of work to get to where I am now. I think that's why when I say it, I only really will truly help people if we're close because I know that I can tell you what I think and you can tell me what I think about my work and nothing's going to come between us and that's where I think if you try and help people too early on into a relationship with them or meeting them or whatever that's where the negatives come from because you're not on that level yet you've got to be on a level and that level changes for every Mm -hmm. different person and you know you can joke and prod and have fun with people in different ways and it's kind of being smart enough wise enough to know how to interact with those people in different ways sometimes you get it wrong you know i have done and people get annoyed but i'd like to think that recently six months last six months i've kind of got better at okay i'm not going to help as many people because they're not going to take it as well or they're just not worth helping or they're not worth helping and i think when you help people and then like I never do it to get something yes. back. Never, ever, ever. But if you help someone and then they could do something mm-hmm. to support back and don't, I think that says a lot more yeah. about certain people than it does about you. And I think I will always try and put myself in the right position, do the right thing wherever. And if that's not reciprocated, then that's difficult at mm-hmm. times, but... What yeah, can you do? I always think about it where in the lens of Vent and the podcast, like when someone asks me for something, whether it's to promote something or whether it's to do something, I always think if I asked them to do something for me, would they do it? And if the answer is not an emphatic yes, then I don't do it. No exactly. point doing it. I can. Put, I agree. One thing that you've said that has come out of the separation is like you said, this ownership and this desire to take responsibility for your mental health and for your life decisions and that has come alongside it this renewed focus I think on your career and on your music so how does that renewed focus shape everything you do not just in music but in life when we spoke previously I said you know I'm not afraid to make big decisions if it's gonna impact me positively and I can make those decisions now and at the minute, I have no regret over them because I feel like I'm in a much or much better situated to try and achieve and strive towards these goals than I was before making those decisions. I might look back in five years, 10 years time and think, you know, what was I thinking? But I think I don't speak to half my family. And that was a, a huge decision that I made. And I don't regret it at this stage. And I know that's going to be tough for some people to hear if they listen to this. But as I said to you earlier, you're either on this train or you're not on this train. And anybody who's talking impactfully or not fully committed to the project, then what are you doing trying to be part of this? You know, And it's tough because these are people that should be supportive, be closest to me and want the absolute best for me and 
I'm making this sound all about me. Um, <laughs> this is your podcast, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you um, want to get meta already. Yeah, no, these, are, <laughs> <laughs> these are people that should, in theory, do anything they can to try and make this work, whether it's the smallest thing, biggest thing, whatever. And if you're not going to do that and you're, you're going to be negative against it and go, oh, what are you doing this for? You know, it's not going to work. Then it's easier for me to not have you mm. around you know and i have become very streamlined and have become very focused as we've spoken about a lot and i think it kind of goes hand in hand because making that big decision cutting people off has kind of enhanced the streamlining and the focus because it's more a case of okay i'm going to make this work because i want to go to you i've done this and i've done it without you and you said it wouldn't work and all of this sort of stuff you want to prove and yourself right though mate not just prove them wrong no i know i know i've had this conversation with people before in terms of you know i do it for me everything i do is for me first and foremost but if you can yeah that's always a bonus another driver yeah. <laughs> on top of that it's always nice isn't it and you know if it doesn't work out and for whatever reason stuff happens i can go okay but i know i gave it absolutely everything and i don't want to look back when i'm old and go what could have been that's something that's come definitely over the last two years in terms of i'm going all in on this i'm going to do whatever it takes and whatever sacrifices it takes to make this work for a period i mean if i'm like i don't know 55 and still scrutting away trying to (laughs) and i know it happens for some people and people emerge much later but i certainly think in this space and space i'm trying to enter there's a window of kind of where most artists break through. And I've probably got 10 years in me to be within that window. I'm going to give it everything in that 10 years and have no regrets when I look back. Well, one person who is a really big supporter of you and it will no doubt probably be either at Jay's gig or at your headline, well, definitely at your headline gig, is your dad. So tell me about the support he's giving you and, and giving you that continued belief that this is a dream that you can hopefully achieve. I think he's great. He probably is my biggest supporter. <laughs> I would be surprised and, if he wasn't, mate. <laughs> um, <laughs> he he doesn't quite get it, I don't think. And I mean, when I say doesn't quite, it's more the technicals. But he knows about what it takes to grow something, to build something. He had or has his own business and has business had businesses in the past that he's grown. And I think he knows that this is going to take time to pick up and building an audience and you know, it kind of it's builds a business on some level, so he definitely understands that. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, exactly. And he will turn up to everything, whatever it may be. And he's fully committed. And it's great because when I talk to him, I could be like, okay, well, I did this, 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 and this. And he's great, great, just going in the right direction. And then he can come back and go, okay, well, I'm doing this, this, and this in my life. And it's kind of like we're living parallel journeys together in terms of we're both building something and you never know when something could just take off tomorrow. And I think he gets that excitement for me and I get that excitement for him by seeing how excited we get about our own projects. Obviously he doesn't get it from a musical level and sort of when stuff happens, I'll have to explain the technicals to him, but in terms of being able to build and grow. He knows the milestones, mate, doesn't he? He's he's fully on board. Exactly. And that's all I special want. in it. Exactly. And it's, it makes me laugh to think about it. But like whenever I play or if he comes 
he just cries, <laughs> which I think is the, the nicest thing. <laughs> and when I did Great Escape, it was like I was playing in Shorts Bar and it was a nice feeling because when I went on, it was pretty dead. And I was worked up in my anxiety state, like no one's here, this is going to perform into an empty room, da 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 da, da. I thought like five minutes in, it filled up, which was great. That's the mark of a good um, artist when you can fill a room whilst it's going on. Do you know what I mean, mate? So big up yourself it, for that. It was a nice, it was a nice yeah. feeling. And I was like, oh, what was it like? And he was like, I, I loved it, but I just spent my time like behind a pillow crying, <laughs> oh, but like happy it, tears. Yeah. And I was like, this is just the sweetest thing ever. Um, if I spot a man crying at these gigs, yeah. I know he's your dad <laughs> in the next two weeks. What you need to do, you need to find a man who's about five foot ten. He's bald and will be <laughs> in tears. And that's my dad. And yeah, he just gets it in terms of the, this is going to take time aspect. Let's not rush things. Let's not make any rash decisions. We're on the right trajectory and it should just continue to mm. build. And that's, at this stage in my career, that's all I could mm. And you can want. go on it together. Exactly. So yeah, he's he's a great a great supporter and a great person. Just yeah, just in general. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, mate. So similar question as the first topic. First of all, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? Um, I think it's taught me that I'm stronger than I ever thought I could be. Don't know how common um, that answer is on this podcast, mate. Which is great. <laughs> <laughs> I think. It's a really weird one because I was actually having this conversation with my girlfriend the other night. You might find this funny. So I don't cry anymore, really, when I get upset, which is a very bizarre thing, right? So a, a couple of months ago, my nan passed away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Went mate. to her funeral. Thank you. And I think I cried one tear all day. Not even at the funeral? Even wow, at the funeral. Okay. But then on the flip side... West Ham, I don't even support them. When they won the Conference League, I was in floods. <laughs> and it was like, so this is the thing. It, nothing makes sense. And I think before going on this musical journey, I'd have bawled at my nan's funeral and not cried at West Ham. And I think that the industry and this journey has just toughened me up to the negatives. Right. This is just my lateral thinking. I might be talking rubbish. It's toughened me up to the negatives where I don't, feel them as much but you feel the positives very positively i feel the positives a lot and i think because the positives come far more infrequently they're rarer yeah you appreciate them for much more than the negatives the setbacks i feel i can cope i can cope with definitely at this stage where then the positives when something good happens whatever it may be i'm just gone and i think it's just i'm so happy for whoever to see people succeed because everyone's trying to do this game and achieve whatever their goal is that when you see people achieve i'm just so happy for them that i then start crying and i, I don't know why is that the um, right balance for you do you think because some people might go well that's not a very good balance i think i don't know because i don't know how you fix that if that's even deemed as mm. broken at my nan's funeral i'd have bet a lot of money on me crying but it didn't it didn't happen and like, I don't even support West Ham. Like, I, I don't know why. It was a West Ham fans game. That's football, happened. mate. That is what, that is what football does. <laughs> well, it yeah. is. I, I cry a lot at happy stuff. And I don't know if you watched it a couple of weeks ago. Channel 4 had a thing where they had celebrities walking on a high wire. 
for Stand Up to Cancer. I watched it on TV. I was crying at that. I've got no idea why, but David Ginola <laughs> walking across West Ham Stadium, right, had me in absolute tears. <laughs> and I think that's just my way of dealing with stuff. Yeah, that's your and, that's your release, you know, mate. That's your that's your release valve. In, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in this moment, it's working for go. me. So <laughs> that's all I can say. And as a final question, you answered it in a similar way in the first topic about going back and speaking to your earlier Ryan, the artist. If you could go back and speak to the Ryan whose parents are just separated, or the Ryan who was about to start that marine biology degree, or the Ryan who was working furiously during the COVID nineteen lockdown making music. What would you say to him, knowing what you do now? It's going to be okay. I think that would be all I'd say. Regardless of music, I've been able to get myself in a position where I can look after myself, fend for myself, where, you know, previously, who knows what could have happened. And whether music works out or doesn't work out, it's fine. I'm in control. And everything's good. So that's probably all I'd say. It's going to be okay. And I think every time I look at it now, like every time something gets better, the baseline just sort of shifts up a little bit. And that's just your natural level then. So nothing realistically is going to get worse. Obviously, things can happen out of the blue and a lot can change. But in terms of being able to look after myself and fend for myself and fend for those around me, it's going to be all right. And then every positive that comes down the line. You'll cry. Just moves that one. I'll cry, and then it'll just move the baseline higher up, and then that becomes your level. And I think you know it doesn't matter whether you do music, do another career, do another passion, whatever. As long as you just keep at it, that baseline will will move up and up and up and up and up, and it will be okay. Whatever level you're meant to get to, be at, you'll get there as long as. You work mm. hard at it. And I think that's and who knows, it. you might be making baseline music in the next five years and bring that back. Oh, who, who knows <laughs> where what, we could you go. What? <laughs> <laughs> We've come to our final topic of conversation, Rye, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Good. I think we're doing it. It's an interesting time where everything's kind of building up, but I think I'm on top of it. I'm happy and happy and comfortable. And I think that's probably all I can ask for at the minute. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks, mate. Yeah, I'd say on a scale of one to 10, it's probably about a 6.5. A couple of days ago, it was probably about, well, I say a couple of days, it's Friday today. Last week, I had surgery, which was probably about a two and a half out of 10, maybe a one. What did you have done? Oh, um, if you want to put it in the podcast, I well, let, let, let's, let's, just, let's just say for the purpose of the podcast, it was a sensitive issue. So I had okay. an abscess removed in July, and it was a similar mm-hmm. area to where the abscess was removed. Let's put it that way, which also cost me a okay. lot of money because I had to go private because the NHS is on its knees. But that's a separate podcast. What age were you, mate, when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical? And they were actually in your mind. Pretty late on, I'd say, because everything was good for mm. ages. I don't know. I uh, 17. Okay. 18? Well, that was, that was the age like, I became self-aware. And was it a eureka moment or a gradual process? Probably a gradual process. Okay. I reckon. 
I used to find myself getting frustrated a lot. I still do now. But that kind of frustration built, and we've spoken about it so much, but like I get most frustrated when stuff is out of my control. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> so I think when you get to that age and, and things start becoming out of your control, that's when it kind of just built. And I was like, okay, I probably need to mm. sort this out. And can you also remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say and how did you feel afterwards or look back on it? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or a weight had been lifted or on the other, something quite easy and normal to do? I, I can't remember the, the first chat I had, if I'm being honest. Um, okay, the most important one, the one you can remember. Most important chat, it probably felt like a weight had been lifted. I think I respond best to reassurance. If I'm told, you know, we can put this in place, we can do this, we can do that. And you can, I can see the, the vision and the roadmap out of somewhere. That's my best response. So I think when someone goes, okay, we can do this, this and this, and it'll be better. Great. That's... That normally works for me, mate. So <laughs> yeah. After anxiety attack, people go, oh, how... <laughs> breathing techniques. No, breathing techniques is absolute crap for me. I need reassurance and closure. <laughs> Let me know it's okay yeah, yeah. and then we'll move Let on. Let me know my life isn't about to end or be cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we've spoken about it there, but what other triggers do you find in life that affect your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, things not being in your control, like you said, a sound, a sensation, or have you not figured all of them out yet? If people say stuff to me, that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't mind. I get called all yeah, sorts. Yeah, I'm like that now. Like, water off a duck's back, you know, whatever. Mainly because I think the people who say that sort of stuff don't know me. And those who do, I'd like to think wouldn't say that because they know what I'm like. Sounds and sensations, not really. Yeah, that's fine. Like, that doesn't trigger me. My biggest trigger, and it's been the topic throughout. Control. Stress, <laughs> stress and control. Yeah, yeah. Stress and control, but then that stress. So I'll go back. People saying stuff doesn't affect me if I'm not stressed. If I'm stressed and someone is in my ear, that's it. I wouldn't want to be them because I'm going to lose it at some point. And I never just flip. It will build and build and build and build. And then I'll go, which is, oh, well, must be hard to be around because you never know when that flip's going to be. You need to um, get the release valve in quick. Or quicker. Exactly. <laughs> I just, just kind of, yeah. Like a trumpet, if, if like a trumpet spit valve. You just need to let it go a bit more. <laughs> let it go <like laughs> early doors, doors, mate. Yeah. And then we're yeah. all right. So, yeah, if we, as long as I can alleviate stuff early on, it's fine. But it is stress and control followed by talking if the stress is in the first mm. place. Conversely, then, mate, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health? Which ones have you found that have worked? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I know that like most people say go and talk to someone, get it off your chest, which I never do because... It doesn't always work, by the way. It can work. It, it I don't can think work it works. for a lot of men, but it doesn't always work. I don't think it works. My best remedy to it, leave me alone. Let space, me just, boundaries. Space, let me get back in my comfort zone, in control. I'll sort it out myself we're all good again and then you know, i'll check if, in yeah. exactly and then we can talk about it after once we've got the the reins back on mm. it it's fine if we <laughs> if we're trying to talk about stuff and i'm still feeling that stress and not in control we're not talking about that because my mind's elsewhere yep. so yeah leave me alone for a little bit it might only be half an hour just let me get back on it and then we can talk it through afterwards but instead of going and having that chat initially i found that doesn't typically work for me 
what has been the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be self-help or mental health related. doesn't exclusively have to be. can be fiction. And if you can't think of a book, an album, a TV show, any piece of popular culture that's had an important impact. It's going to be really bad, but I actually haven't read a book <laughs> in so long. Um, I shouldn't laugh, but that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've read a book since I've left marine biology uni so that's okay let's go album then i'll go album i always struggle with this because i've listened to so many unbelievable albums and i'm such a music nerd i always go back to the ones that i i don't go if someone asked me to pick an album i wouldn't pick an album normally that is was like profound i'd be like what one do i love going back to you me six take off your colors 2008 or 2009 it's like because it it transports you back to the time period rather than like oh my god the themes on this album and the and the whatever like i don't really tend to pick albums like that yeah i i i kind of just listen to stuff probably now i know it's going to come full circle back to like the stuff that I started listening to when I started. Lamar. <laughs> Lamar and Rod yeah. Stewart, calm me yeah. right down. No, that like summer 16 soundtrack, that's the sort of stuff that I fell in love with early on. And I think that's always my go-to. Matoma. To. Mato- yeah. yeah, that tune you do a bit Becky Hill. Yeah, I do remember, remember that. So like stuff like that, stuff that's, it can be on in the background and you're just chilling to it. You don't have to listen to it properly. It's just there and it's just soothing. Stuff like that. I mean... A comfort listen. A comfort listen, yeah. And then some of like the newer stuff, like I know you've interviewed her, but like currently my go-to is like LP Joby. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I, I, I still I need love, to listen to her out new her. album. I think she's great. I was put onto her a couple of months ago. So yeah, like that kind of gentle listening mm. rather than something that i have to listen listen you should to listen to sophie tucker if you love lp joby because that's how yeah, LP, she's good, that's how she? sophie tucker got lp joby like a bigger platform because she was their their sport yeah. dj and and sophie tucker mm-hmm. absolutely insanely good insanely yeah. good i've seen them live twice i'm i went to see them at shepherd's bush empire the second time i've never heard shepherd's bush empire that loud i've been to shepherd's bush empire a long really? time been going for a long long time i've never heard shepherd's bush empire that loud they are insanely good but there we go if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Like a quote or a favourite phrase or a saying? <laughs> it goes back to what I'd tell myself earlier, and I say it all the time, but a little less well said. It'll be all right in it. Is a lot of love, stuff that's a very that's such a male way of looking at it. I love that. It'll be all right in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know that's probably not. The greatest bit of mental health advice people would want at the minute, but it's definitely something that I say. And Simplicity fine, is, is key sometimes, mate. Isn't it? I, I think sometimes you have to just, you have to step back and not, I'm a bad one for this, focusing on the pernickety details and, you know, take a step back, have a look and it'll be good, isn't it? What do you love about yourself? Um... It's going to be really cliche. Go on. But I love the fact that I think people just think I'm really nice. <laughs> I'll take it. And if I could just be known as like one thing, whatever it may be, just being a nice guy. A good lad. A good know, lad. I think yeah. there's a lot of people out there that are, are not or put a front yes. on and pretend they are and, and aren't. Where I like to think that what you see is what you get with me. Authentic, and mate. That's good. 
exactly and yeah I, I just want people to think i'm all right and as a final question this is a very broad one so you can answer it any way you want what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly they want to do it i think we need to talk more and i know there's been a huge increase in stuff recently and people being able to reach out to different platforms but the more you do it the more something becomes a comfort and i think when you see that comfort people will then who haven't perhaps considered talking before will then feel even more at ease i think there's probably still that culture where it's like oh blokes don't need to talk blokes will be all right in some areas and you have to let stuff off your chest but i think if you're in that frame of mind it's like oh well, what are you doing that for where if it becomes more generalized and it has become more generalized but continues to become more generalized it'll become more of a comfort for people and then they'll talk more often i reckon it's becoming more mainstream which is good and it needs to continue in that way and i think the more it is there the more people will get involved with it on that note ryan it's been an absolute pleasure long time lamar fan thank you so much for (laughs) coming on behind the decks and talking to me mate thank you so much for having me up the irons Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of Behind the Decks. I want to say a big thank you to Ryan Doyle for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go Behind the Decks with him. Ryan's new single, Like That, will play us out and I'll put all of Ryan's streaming and social media links in the show notes as always. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the venters who tuned into this episode. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it and spread the word about Vent and the podcast. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. You can also support us by going to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks. And remember, guys... It is always okay to vent. down
found 